Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis once again. And we will be reading the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be concentrating on the first two verses. We're not going to be getting through everything that is in the outlines in your bulletin. But I want to read, all, in, in anyway, I want to read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. These words follow, follow, as you recall, what has been said in verse 31 of the former chapter, that God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And now we read in verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them, were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Once again, let's pray for the blessing of God. Holy Father, as you bless this wonderful day, one day in seven, right from the very beginning, we do pray that you would enable us to appreciate and enter into this blessing. We pray, O oh Father, that you would be pleased to cause us to long for this day and not dread it, to use it to maximum good, to enjoy you, O oh Lord our God, on this day, to enjoy your Son and the Holy Spirit as we just sang. And we pray, Lord, that to this end, that your Spirit would descend upon us even now, giving us understanding of your purpose, and of what you have said in this portion of your word. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We all like holidays. Most of us grew up looking forward to Easter, Independence Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Day, and we could list other holidays that we look forward to. But in our era of political correctness, there are some people that seem like they're out to ruin every holiday that there is. To the politically correct, the celebration of Thanksgiving and the remembrance of the pilgrims at Squanto and Pocahontas, all of this is just a reminder of genocide that the whites committed, supposedly, and it portrays a stereotype of Native Americans scalping whites and burning villages to the ground. So we've got to get rid of Thanksgiving. And no holiday is taken to the chopping block more than Christmas. Recently, the Public School Review put out its Guide to a Politically Correct Holiday Classroom Party. And so Santa and Christmas trees and even candy canes, these things are no longer appropriate for your child's classroom holiday party. And that Christmas tree under which Students, children place their gifts for the needy children to be given to them at that time of the year. Because some people are offended over the possibility that maybe this Christmas tree is associated with the birth of Christ, we've got to get rid of the Christmas tree. And because nativity scenes definitely relate to the birth of Jesus, even these are, uh, these are likely to cause even greater offense. But even candy canes, these have to go because some people think that they're designed to, to imitate a shepherd's crook, which gives a biblical image. 
and green and red cups and plates and napkins. These are also on the chopping block, because green and red are traditionally seen as Christmas colors. Some schools, therefore, have instituted policies against using these colors at that time of the year, and so they are told safer alternatives include white or silver. And snowflakes, snow globes, and snowmen, these are more safe. These are safer alternatives for anything that would be even than anything else that might even be in any way remotely conveying a religious theme. And so many schools and workplaces have used the winter wonderland theme instead of anything that reminds them of the birth of Christ. In fact, it's best not to even call it Christmas. It's better to call it a celebration of winter. And even away from schools, the jihad against Christmas is unrelating. After a recent Christmas emirate Tyrell, he wrote, Ah, the Christmas season is about over. And soon I shall be liberated from the alarm I experience every time some benevolent authoritarian accosts me with the line, Happy, have a happy holiday. His meaning is clear. Have a happy holiday or else. These are the moralists who somehow always manage simultaneously to identify iniquity of one sort or another in conventional behavior and stamp it out good and hard. So Merry Christmas has been replaced with Happy Holiday. And anybody who stands by the term Merry Christmas is immediately marked down as a provocateur and probably a bigot. Well, it kind of takes the fun out of all these holidays, doesn't it? It takes the joy out of them all when you have people like that that want to pounce upon them and carry out their purification uh, purge. But strictly speaking... The Bible does not prescribe any annual holiday that we celebrate. And for this reason, we treat the observance of such holidays as a matter of Christian liberty. There are some Christians that feel like well, there were pagan associations with Christmas celebration at the very beginning, and so they want to avoid it. And others see, well, that's so remote, and I don't think about that, and they go ahead and enjoy the holiday. And even though some of our Jewish brethren who believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, even though they would join their relatives in celebrating some of the feasts that are prescribed in the Old Testament, most of us do not celebrate Passover. We don't celebrate Hanukkah and some of these other feasts. But there is one holiday that God has prescribed. And he's ordained it for all time. It's a wonderful holiday. It's the holiday that we celebrate 52 times a year. And we probably don't think of a weekly rest as a holiday, but that's exactly what it is. A holiday is a change of our usual routine. It's a break from work. It's a time to relax. And so in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 2, we have the origins of this weekly holiday or holy day, a day that at first was celebrated on Saturday, and now is celebrated on the first day of the week. But before we examine the sentences and the phrases that we read a moment ago, it's important that we take an account of the setting of these words. What we have here is a creation institution. Before there was an Israel, before there was a Moses or tablets that came down from Sinai with certain laws on them, one of them being a law about the Sabbath. Before all of that took place, God established the Sabbath at creation. 
And he did the same with other creation institutions. And these institutions include marriage, procreation, and labor. And because these institutions were ordained right from the very beginning at creation, these institutions were intended not just for Israel, but for all mankind. There were some things that were given later on at Mount Sinai that were designed for Israel, but not this. And, what, and so what Bible believer, you would have to ask, would ever dare question the other creation institutions that I just mentioned? What Bible believer would say, well, I don't know about marriage. We can just kind of throw that overboard. But one of them would say, well, we don't have to work, or we don't have to uh, trust in God for the uh, giving us of our children and so forth. We wouldn't, they wouldn't question them. As Beckwith and Stott observed that the Sabbath goes back to creation and belongs to the nature of things as God intended them right from the beginning. It stands on a different plane from the ordinances that originated with the Mosaic law. Now the Sabbath, it was not a temporary ordinance, therefore, that was given just for a time for the Jews at Mount Sinai. Since God established the Sabbath at creation and not at Sinai, it is clear that its obligation it was not tied to the existence of the old covenant set up in the time of Moses. And therefore, it does not cease when God replaces the old covenant with the new covenant. The Sabbath goes through a transformation, but it's still there. It's not a passing Jewish ordinance. And instead, it is among those ordinances that shall stand until this creation is abolished and the new heavens and the new earth come into being. Now, under the Mosaic Covenant, there were a number of regulations that were temporarily added to the observance of the Sabbath. These temporary regulations, they greatly increased the strictness with which it was to be observed. These temporary regulations, they were abolished at the time of the new institution of the new covenant. And under the old covenant, there were strict prohibitions, such as you can't pick up sticks on the Sabbath day. And it was reinforced even by the death penalty to stress its importance. And under the old covenant, God's people, they were treated, you see, as children are treated with strict rules. You have lots of rules you give your children that you don't need to have rules for as adults. They were given all these extra rules that accompany, you see, God's purpose of having a day of worship. But now we are treated as mature sons and daughters in Christ, and he gives us biblical principles with which we can seek to honor him. And so this is the reason why I always hesitate to answer questions that people might ask. Well, can I go through a hike on the wood, on the woods, in the woods on the Lord's Day? And many such questions. And instead, I prefer that you wrestle with the biblical principles and into your conscience uh, live this day out in a way that you believe that God would have you to live this day. Now, with reference to its setting, let me also point out that when God instituted the Sabbath, he ordained the Sabbath for man at a time when Adam had not fallen into sin. This preceded the fall. Adam's soul was pure. His conscience did not accuse him of one sin at this time. His mind, his affections, and his will were completely untainted by sin. He enjoyed perfect communion with God. And therefore the Sabbath, it does not derive its validity 
from those circumstances that have come about with the entrance of sin into the world. Now it's true that there are now new reasons to abstain from things that will take our hearts away from God, things that were not a temptation to Adam right at the beginning. Now there is a sin that you see that's flooded the earth, and there are new things that that tempt us. And it's true that redemption has had an impact on the way we observe now what we call the Lord's Day. But neither sin nor redemption, neither of these things you see, abrogated these creation institutions. Marriage, procreation, labor, and the Sabbath stand for all time. Now, Adam was to set aside, you see, his ordinary labors every seven days and keep a holy day of rest. On the Sabbath, he was to worship God. He was to commune with God in a way that would have been impossible if he was distracted with all the cares of tending the garden and so forth. And if the Sabbath was necessary, you see, for man, even in his innocence, how much more is it necessary for man after he has fallen into sin? John Willison notes that God saw man's heart would be so glued to the world, so drenched in sensuality, that were he left to himself, he would not allow one day in a month, nay, in a year, for divine worship, but would have drudged himself, his servants and beasts, even to death in pursuit of worldly things without minding anything that is better. Well, the Sabbath, therefore, it was originally given to man in his innocence. And if he needed it in his innocence, how much more do we need this day with with break away from other things to draw near to God? How much more even now? Well, as we take up what Genesis chapter 2 tells us about the first Sabbath, we're going to do so under three headings. We'll only get to the first two this morning. We want to look at the glorious backdrop which sets forth the glory of the Sabbath, verse 1. And then secondly, we want to look at the divine example which sets forth the essence of the Sabbath, verse 2. And then finally, and this will be in our next study, the divine activities which define the essential character of the Sabbath in verse 3. In the first place, we take up this morning the glorious backdrop which sets forth the glory of the Sabbath. Let's read again from verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Now these words appropriately, they begin with the words thus in the New King James. And they summarize God's creative activity on the preceding six days. It's not telling us about what God did on the seventh day. But they summarize what had already been done. The creation of the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. Now the word that's translated host in verse 1, sabaoth, it denotes a multitude that is arranged in an orderly fashion. It is a word that's used to describe an army marshaled in battle array, for instance. The, The host go out against the enemies. That's a picture even that is used in the Bible. Sometimes the word is used of angels, the host of of God or the angels. And here and elsewhere, and here is I think it's referring to the starry host, the host of the, the galaxies of stars that are out there. And so the host of them 
It described in Psalm 33 and verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. That's the way the word is used here in Genesis chapter 2. The host of heavenly bodies, the innumerable galaxies of a vast universe, these were marshaled, you see, in perfect array. This vast universe, our text stresses, it was now finished. And the basic idea of the Hebrew word translated finished is to bring a process to completion. For example, to bring the building of the temple to completion. You're finished with building it. It's used that way. It's used of a speech that was finished, of a harvest that has been finished. And the emphasis is the totality of the completion of that task. And when the word is used, it's not used, you see, of a person that comes to a certain point in the process and then stops and thinks it's all done. You know, you tell your children to pick up the room, and they pick up three or four things and say, Daddy, look here, it's all picked up. And you go in and you find about 50 more things that need to be picked up. That's not the way the word is used, you see. In the Bible, it is referring to something that is actually finished. This is the word that is used in this place. It's used of a task that has been carried out in full. For instance, Naomi tells Ruth and Boaz that he will not rest, and here I quote, until he has finished the matter. And that's the whole thing of the Redeemer that was going to marry her and so forth. He was going to carry it out to completion. He was going to finish the matter. And the picture here you see is that and throughout the earth and throughout the vast galaxies of the universe, it's a picture of God's work now being so perfect that nothing could be added to it to make it better. Nothing could be, could be, needs to be altered to make it better. And whatever God sets out to do, dear people, he finishes. Jesus finished the work of redemption on the cross. And in the new creation of the, of the believer, the work at last will be finished. In glory, it will all be done. And so it was with the old creation. Eternity will never witness even one unfinished work of God. Now this was the glorious backdrop of the original Sabbath. The sounds of construction ceased. A profound silence and stillness pervaded the universe. No more rushing of winds and waters and so forth here as it was taking place during the creation of the six days. There's no noise. There's no speaking of God, speaking things into existence. All that God has designed and willed for the great canvas of the universe, it's now in place, perfectly so. It's finished. The divine artist, therefore, he surveys the canvas of his work, and he can see nothing that needs to be added or altered. Now, it's important that we understand that the original context of the Sabbath was not the context of a fallen creation. It was given instead against the glorious backdrop of the pristine beauty and absolute perfection of God's creation. And the work was so marvelous that when it was finished, it should be celebrated. It's something to rejoice in. And therefore, the first day of the week, after the work was done, was a 
day of celebration and of worship. And of all the days of the creative week, it was the grandest and the most glorious day. I say the first day, actually the seventh day at that point. For God, it was the seventh day, and yet, this is an interesting thing, for us and for mankind, it was his first day upon the earth, the first full day for Adam and Eve. It was a holy day of rest and of communion with God. It was a day of glory. So this is the divine setting or backdrop that sets forth the glory of the Sabbath. But now in the second place, I want you to notice with me, and we're going to have a little more detail of consideration here. Look, consider with me the divine example which sets forth the essence of the Sabbath. And this is what we find in verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now, how is it that God sets this ordinance before Adam? It's by way of example. It's not delivered to him by way of some kind of a cold, impersonal edict. It's warmly commended to him by God's very example. It was given to one that's created in God's image, who would want to imitate the one that created him. He got, Adam loved God with all of his heart. He had a heart that responded to God's heart, so to speak. And nothing would so set Adam's heart ablaze to do what he should do at this point, but seeing the one that he loved with all of his heart, with all of his soul, resting on that day. And Adam would say, this is by, this is by God, and I want to rest together with him and follow his example. So what did God do? Having finished his work on six days, this text tells us he rested on the seventh day. Now here, lest this verse be misunderstood, we need to avoid the impression that some modern translations have given that on the seventh day, God was still putting the finishing touches on his creative work. And after that, the work was then complete, and then he rested. Some translations begin in this way, verse 2, and on the seventh day God finished his work. Makes it sound like he's still finishing it up on the seventh day. And so I think it would be better to translate the verb finished as a pluperfect, as a certain tense in the Hebrew, and it would be translated on the seventh day God had finished. In other words, prior to the seventh day, God had already finished his work of creation. That's what it's saying here. And the whole point of the verse is that having finished his creative work on the previous six days, on the seventh day, God rested from that creative work. Now, there are some people that object that while the seventh day is mentioned here, there's nothing here said about the Sabbath. We don't have anything like the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, a law that explicitly uses the noun Sabbath. But in Hebrew, the way that Hebrew is constructed, a lot of words, they will, be, they will have a noun form and they will also have a verb form. And yet they come from the same root and they have the basic same meaning. And what we have here is a verb form of the Hebrew word for Sabbath. And so in the second part of verse 2, instead of the translation, he rested on the seventh day, 
It would be, I think, better for us to translate it this way. He Sabbathed on the seventh day. And yet those words mean essentially the same thing. The word translated Sabbathed or rested, it means to cease or to desist from something, to stop. And therefore, the very essence of the Sabbath is that it is a day of rest, a day of ceasing, patterned after God's example of resting after his creative work. And having finished his creative work in six days, the Lord, you see, he Sabbathed on the seventh day. And this is reinforced at the end of verse 3. And the reason why he blessed and sanctified the day on that, in verse 3, is that on that day, and here I quote from the end of that verse, he rested. Again, the same word is used. Or we could translate it, he Sabbathed from all his work which God had created and made. Now, there's a perfectly good word for rest, by the way, in Hebrew, that doesn't have the thought of a Sabbath attached to it. And Moses does not use that word. He uses, deliberately uses this word that has the connotation of Sabbath-keeping. The Holy Spirit guided him to choose that very verb. And why did God rest? Was it because God was tired? You and I need a break after we work. So we have even breaks every two hours. We get a few minutes if we have a union shop especially. Is God worn out and he needs a little break? Absolutely not. Our omnipotent God never needs to rest. And regardless of the amount of power that goes forth from God, his power is not depleted one whit. His omnipotent creating power is infinite. Have you not known, he asks, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? Isaiah 40, 28. So what then does this rest mean? If it isn't that he's tired, he needs a break, what does it mean with reference to God? Well, there are three elements, and we've put them in the outlines that are there in your bulletins. First of all, it involves cessation from God's creative work. It wasn't a cessation of all work or all activity, but from a particular kind of work, the work of creation. He rested, or he Sabbathed on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. We read in verse 2. In verse 3 adds that he rested, or he Sabbathed specifically from all his work which God had created and made. And the specific word that's used for work in this place the work that he rested from, in verse 2, it's a word that refers to skillful labor. That's what God did when he created everything. It was the, like the artisan that creates the universe. That's the word that's used here. God ceased from the skillful labor of creation. Now this doesn't mean that having ceased his creative work, God is inactive then. In John five seventeen, when Jesus was accused of working on the Sabbath, Breaking, therefore, the fourth commandment, he said, and this is after he healed somebody, he's accused of breaking the Sabbath. He says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. And so he justifies healing on the Sabbath day. He didn't say, well, I shouldn't have worked. I made a mistake here. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I need to kind of tighten up my, 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 my Sabbath keeping here. No. The son he rests, you see, from ordinary labors, but he continues to heal the sick and minister to the needy. 
And so rather than a transition from work to idleness, you see, what this is speaking about here in Genesis chapter 2 is transition from one kind of work or activity to another kind of work or activity. And likewise with Christ, when he cried out, it is finished. This doesn't mean that it was a transition to nothingness, but it was a transition from suffering to that of interceding. He ever lives now to intercede in our behalf. In the same way, we rest from the labors of the preceding week, and we do this that we might engage in a different kind of work, a higher calling. The Sabbath, it's not a day of indolence. It's a day of resting from the cares and concerns of this world. Why? That we might engage ourselves in a higher work, in higher activities. It involves cessation from the occupations of the week in order that we might devote ourselves to things that are spiritual and eternal. So God ceases from uttering his creative words in order that he might speak to the hearts and souls that have been created in his image, in order that he might bring them closer to himself. On the sacred day of rest, God's voice is no longer directed to unconscious matter below. It's no longer directed to the brute beasts that are below. He speaks to those that can hear him. He communes with them. He enters into a different kind of activity. And so this is the first element of this rest. It was rest from his creative labor. And the second element of this rest is that it was a rest of spiritual refreshment. In Exodus 31, 16, God, uh, Moses stresses the obligation of God's people, and here I quote, to keep the Sabbath throughout their generations. And then in verse 17, I should have put verse 17 also in the outlines. In verse 17, he gives the reason there to keep the Sabbath. He says, in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested. And then there's these words, and was refreshed. So this rest also involved refreshment. Now again, this is not that God is tired, he needs to be rejuvenated. But rather, when he is finished creating, he enjoys refreshing delight. And he came, he contemplated what he had made and it filled his heart with joy. It was the kind of refreshing delight, you see, that comes when we are satisfied with a job that's been well done. In Psalm 104.31, we read of the Lord rejoicing in his works. That's what we have here. After the painstaking labor of a painting, of a vast masterpiece, one of the most amazing pieces of art that I've ever seen, it was on display in the, in the State Museum a number of years ago. It's permanent, permanently displayed down in, in New York City. But it was, it was a, a story of, 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 of nations. And it was, this, it was huge canvases, about eight feet long, each one of them, four of them, depicting four different stages of the same scene. And it's, it has incredible details with hundreds of people painted in great detail in, in those paintings. And this is the picture you see of, of an artist like that that's labored perhaps a whole year upon this great masterpiece. And it's filled with intricacy of, of detail. And he now at last stands back. He looks it over. He takes it all in. And he rejoices. 
Only with God's creative work, there is absolutely no flaw. No critic can come, come and pick away at, 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 at what God had just done. I hate to read the critics when they, after I went to a symphony. They, they make it sound like, you know, you shouldn't have even gone. I, I just rather skip their, their, their picky unish little things that they pick away. You see at this or that, the performance or the original piece and so forth. I remember reading of Beethoven's triple concerto and all the criticisms that was poured out against that concerto. But nobody could do this with what God has just done. It's absolutely perfect. No critic could come up with something that is defective in it. In every human work, you see, there's much that's imperfect. Regrets and disappointments mingled with our joys. But there was nothing to mar the satisfaction of God and what he had done as he looks at what he has made. He surveys the whole sea, and he's ravished with refreshing delight. And so there is this second element of spiritual refreshment. And the third element of this rest was that of entering into his resting place. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, where we have the Ten Commandments, and the reason is given for keeping the Sabbath day is this, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Now it's interesting that in that place, the word translated rested is not the same one that we have here in Genesis chapter 2. The Hebrew word for rested in Exodus 20 and verse 11, it's different. Instead of depicting the absence of movement, instead of depicting this simple cessation, it depicts settling down into a place. In Genesis 8.4, for instance, the same word is used of Noah's ark resting on Mount Ararat. And this word is used in Numbers 11.12, or Numbers 11.25. It's used of the spirit resting. It it's, refers to a location, you see. He rests upon the 70 elders of Israel gathered around the tabernacle, enabling them to prophesy. And the noun form of this word is used in, in Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place, he says, forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now God dwells in all space. At the dedication of the temple, therefore, Solomon prayed, the heavens and the heaven of the heavens cannot contain you, he says to God, much less this house that I built for your name. He sees and he understands that God doesn't just dwell, you see, in a little temple in one spot on the earth. He fills the universe, and even the universe can't contain this vast God. And yet, even though God is omnipresent, there is such a thing as God's special presence in that place where his people gather. He has promised where two or three gather together in his name, Jesus promised. There he says, I will be with them. And so even though he dwells in all space, there is a special presence in some locations when God's people worship together. Likewise, God not only dwells in all space, he dwells in all time. And yet his special presence is manifested at certain times, just as it is in certain places. On the first Sabbath, his special presence was manifested to Adam and Eve. 
God entered into his resting place. And thereby he invited Adam and Eve into that special time that he had made this resting place. He invited them to enter into his rest. Now a common objection to the Lord's day is the assertion, well, every day is the Lord's day. But let me ask, shall we despise the special presence of the Lord among his gathered people? Shall we use the same excuse and say, well, every place is the same. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go sing those songs and pray with those people and talk to those people. I can just go out and sit in my boat and I can just do it, do it out there. You see, every, God's everywhere, so I don't have to go there. Is this, is this a biblical argument? I say, no, it's not a biblical argument. And it's not a biblical argument because God has promised to specially be with us when we gather together. And neither is it a biblical argument to use this against a day of rest. God has promised a special presence on that day. So those who excuse making the Lord's Day like just any other day, saying every day is the Lord's Day, they tend to have no day at all. No Lord's Day, I should say. They tend to lose out, therefore, on the wonderful privilege of spending time with God on that day in which he manifests his special presence. So summing up the teaching of Genesis 2-2, the essence of the day is that it is a day of rest. And just as we have seen, God's rest had a threefold nature. And we too are invited to enter this rest in a threefold manner patterned after God's rest. Just to go over these three things again, there is the cessation of our mundane work that we might engage in a higher work. Resting from our secular occupations and earthly activities on this day is not just that we might kick our heels up and just be lazy for a day. That's not the idea. This day instead it's been provided that we might not be distracted by all those things that take our minds and hearts away from God. It's been given to us that without distraction, you see, we can engage now in higher things, more holy things, more satisfying things. And as we study the rest of the Bible on this theme, we learn that this rest is compatible with such things as works of piety, works of mercy, and works of necessity, but not, you see, with the pursuit of our ordinary occupations and entertainments. And so we enter into this rest that we might have a higher work. And there's also with us a spiritual refreshment that we enjoy on this day. And just as God was, as it were, refreshed and exhilarated as he contemplated what he had just done, the Lord's Day, it's meant to be a day of refreshment. It's meant to be a day of joy for God's people. You see, the devil always wants to make it, paint it out a different way. He wants to make it look like it's a terrible day. All the people, they just go around condemning one another for what they, oh, I, I saw you doing such and such a thing. Ha, 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 He wants to paint that terrible picture, you see, of this. And that's not, the, that's not the emphasis of this day. It's a day of spiritual refreshment. It's a day of spiritual joy in our God. And on this day, we commune with the triune God. The Father rejoices in his works. The Son has been anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And we are told that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. And so as we have communion with this triune God, and as we contemplate not only his work of creation, but also his work of redemption, we are refreshed. And our hearts are filled with joy. 
And this is why, instead of giving you a list of all the things that you can't do on this day, I would rather have you think about those things that will help you rejoice in God, help you rejoice in, in, in your Savior. Now, here in the 21st century America, we have a lot of things that distract us and that make it difficult to keep the Lord's day, to rejoice in the Lord on this day. But we have some wonderful helps as well. And we should take advantage of these things. We have ready access with our cars and, and whatever to, to go for a stroll and, and admire what God has done on the, uh, in creation. And through our computers, through our stereo systems, we can listen to soul-refreshing music. On YouTube, you can, actually, you can actually, as it were, almost be virtually there at a, at a whole concert. Especially you could watch it at a Christian concert. And there are cable channels that are a source of great edifying music that, that, that are edifying for us. There's an abundance of videos that are, that are edifying, that can be enjoyed by God's people. They include such things as nature programs that speak of what God has made. Christian biographies, Christian movies, edifying documentaries. And along these lines, there are edifying programs streamed on Redeemed TV. And you can look, that, look into that perhaps, or on Netflix even. And the Lord's Day also it gives us a wonderful opportunity for hospitality, to invite one another into each other's homes, that we might fellowship with one another. And then, of course, let's not forget the opportunity that this day gives us to read the Bible and to read edifying literature. But chief among all these avenues of refreshment is the gathering of God's people for worship. And at some point, we want to return to our corporate gatherings for an afternoon service, but and even now, we have the opportunity to uh, join our brothers in, in other places online in various ways. But these are just some of the ways, you see, in this 21st century, that we can have our hearts refreshed on this day. These are just some of these ways. And truly, this day is everything that we sang about in the hymn that immediately preceded this sermon. Oh, day of rest and gladness. O day of joy and light, O balm of care and sadness, most beautiful, most bright. On thee the high and lowly, though ages to join in tune, sing holy, holy, holy to the great God triune. Thou art a port protected from storms that round us rise, a garden intersected with streams of paradise. Thou art a cooling fountain in life's dry, dreary sand. From thee, like Pisgah's mountain, we view our promised land. Today on weary nations the heavenly manna falls. To holy convocations the silver trumpet calls. Where gospel light is flowing with pure and radiant beams and living waters flowing with soul-refreshing streams. As it was for God, a day of refreshment, it's that for us too. And then thirdly and finally, this day is also a resting place where our souls might enjoy fellowship and communion with God. God's rest was a rest of deep pleasure. And this joyous rest was surely extended to Adam and Eve. And in this original rest, it was a foretaste of that eternal rest that will be enjoyed when the heavens and the earth are created anew. Now, coming back to our second main point, the threefold rest that we have just described 
It's supremely set forth, let's remember, by divine example. How do we learn about this rest? How did Adam learn about it? It was by way of divine example. There are some people that say that this passage has nothing to do about Sabbath observance or the Lord's Day as we now call it under the New Covenant. It provides us an account of the completion of the creation week, they say, but it doesn't contain any command that we're to, to, to keep a Sabbath. And they say, well, unless it's commanded, we don't have to do it. But this misses the fact that the whole passage is given in order to teach us. What they just given you see just as interesting information. God didn't need to create the world in six days and then rest on the seventh. Why did he do that? It was to teach us something. It isn't, well, it's interesting that God does this in six days, and, and it's kind of interesting, too, that he, that he has a break, you know, after it's all over. That's not the reason why this is set forth in this way. He structures the whole creation to teach us something. He does these things for our sakes. And so let us ever remember that what God does, he does by way of example. As the Puritan Thomas Shepard has observed, it cannot be shown that God ever made himself an example of any act. But that in the present example, there was and is a present rule binding immediately to follow that example. The great and most high God could have made the world in a moment or in a hundred years. Why did he make it then in six days and rest of the seventh day? but that it might be an example to man. Once the day was sanctified at creation, it became a moral duty to man to observe it after God's example. And let's not forget that the account of the first Sabbath, it was preceded by an assertion at the end of Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image. And as God's image bearer, Adam was God's son. We read in chapter 5. And even after the fall, he's still in the image of God. And as a son created in the image of his father, Adam had an ethical obligation to imitate his father. Even as human fathers, we, we're supposed to be examples. And this is the way our sons learn to do the right thing. They will follow our, our godly example. And as an image bearer created in, God's, in, in the father's likeness, Adam mustn't misrepresent God. He, he's a visible representation of God, you see. And what the Father loves, he's to love. What the Father highly regards, he's to highly regard. What the Father does, he is to do. And so it is with men and women at all times, at all ages. Even now, you and I are image bearers of God. And what God reverences, we are to reverence. The Ten Commandments, they illustrate this. God references various things. You can go through the commandments, and they, they teach us positively. They don't not only teach us about what we're not to do, but what God holds as a sanctity. He references, for instance, constituted authority. He references human life, the marriage bond, private property, truth, and so forth. And we're to do the same. And failure to reverence what God reverences is sin. And failure to imitate God and what the Father loves and what he regards as sin. It's a slanderous misrepresentation of God. And so to us, as to Adam, is this precept, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Adam didn't need a command at this point. The actions of his heavenly Father spoke louder than words. His heart instinctively wanted to enter into the rest 
that he saw his heavenly father enter into. The way of concluding application, we see here, first of all, and I was going to use a couple, I'm not sure if we'll get to them both, but we see here the unchanging obligation of this day. New Testament everywhere assumes that what had its beginning at creation, it's still binding on believers. This is the way you remember that Jesus argued about marriage and divorce. When the Pharisees asked Jesus what was the proper grounds for divorce, he goes right back to Genesis chapter 2. Have you not read that he who made them male and female at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. See what he says here. He goes right back to creation. And all mankind you see are to follow what God did back then about marriage. Just as Jesus refuted the Jewish perversions of divorce by saying from beginning, it has not been so, so we may refute those that deny that the church still has a day of rest. We can say that from the beginning, Sabbath denial was not, has not been so. This is where it began. This is what we are to imitate. This is what we are to cultivate. And it's true that under the new covenant, there is much that was temporarily added to this day that is included in those things that are shadows that, of that which is to come. And those things were temporarily there, and they were then later on taken away. But again and again, the New Testament appeals to what God did in creation. And it does so with reference to this issue of the creation of man in his image and therefore the imitation of God and keeping a day of rest. For instance, when Jesus corrected the Pharisees about their burdensome interpretation of the fourth commandment, they had all these rules. You can't, you can't even rub the grain off because that's work. And uh, they had all these little things that they had, 600 laws about the Sabbath. And he spent so much time delivering the Sabbath from all those burdens that had been added to it that God never intended. But when he interprets the fourth commandment, what does he do? He goes right back to creation the time in which it's first instituted. He says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't made to make people slaves. That's not what it was all about. These, these Pharisees are making people into slaves. They're making this day into a hateful day. But it's a gracious day. It was made for man's benefit. That's the point that he seeks to drive home with these Pharisees. But we could say more about the abiding obligation but I want just to say a few words before we close. Here also we learn something of the unchanging necessity of the Lord's Day. It's necessary on a lower level that we might have physical rest. Our Creator, He didn't need physical rest, but we do. And He didn't need to have His strength renewed, but He had compassion on us. And so later on, this is implied in the giving of the law that without a day of rest, the servants and even the animals, they're going to be worn out by their masters. And William Still, a well-known minister in Aberdeen, Scotland, he's explored with penetrating insight the implication of the Sabbath rhythm for spiritual, emotional, and physical and vocational health in his book, The Rhythms of Rest and Work. And it's not hard to demonstrate in our day that the necessity of this rest for, the, uh, for physical and emotional health is there. 
The atheistic French Revolution, for instance, they tried to abolish every vestige of Christianity from French society. And so they did away, you see, with the Sabbath, a day of rest. And so they made longer work weeks. And what happened? People were worn out. They were being destroyed by that kind of an approach. They needed this break once a week. And in our own frenetic society, which ignores this day of rest, it's been doing this now for about 70, 80 years. It now finds itself unable to rest. And as believers, we not only need physical rest, but spiritual rest. Every day, every Lord's Day, it's a fresh invitation to each one of us. Few of us have ever lived such a stressful life as Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, founder of the China Inland Mission. mission. But Taylor, he learned to live in God's rest. And his son beautifully, in a book written about him, attested this. And he says, day and night, this was his secret, just to roll the burden on the Lord. And so frequently, uh, people that were wakeful in the little house in Xinkang, they could hear him at two or three in the morning. They could hear the soft refrain of him singing his favorite hymn, Jesus I am resting. I am resting. He had learned that for him, only one life is possible. The life of blessed life and resting and rejoicing in God in the midst of pressures, in the midst of difficulties. And this is an invitation for us to, to also appreciate the same kind of spiritual rest. And this is the rest that God offers to you each week as this day comes around. Like Hudson, God wants you to learn how to rest in him at all times, yes. But the Lord's Day is a reminder each week to lay aside your burdens, to roll them upon God. And as Christians, we have entered into God's rest. We have entered into the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our experience of this rest is proportionate to our trusting in him, as we've seen in our Sunday school studies over the past several months. A wholehearted trust in Christ, it brings rest to our souls. It quiets us. It invigorates us. It refreshes us. But maybe I'm speaking to somebody here that's never experienced this rest. And I close, therefore, by inviting you to come to Jesus for rest. And just having an intellectual belief, this is not going to bring rest to your soul. Just acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior world, this is not going to bring your soul rest. You need to come with a burden of your sin, just like Pilgrim in the Pilgrim's Progress that Bunyan wrote. He rolls the burden off his back at the cross. You need to come to the cross. And there where Jesus died and finished the work, paid for it all, you can find him rest. You don't have to stop trying to save yourself. And all the impossible striving to gain salvation, this needs to be given up. And you must rest only in the Lord Jesus. And only there, and only in him, will your guilt be removed. And so Jesus today, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, he says to you, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.
Let's pray. Most blessed and gracious God, we do thank you and bless you that you have given unto us this day of refreshment, this day of joy and gladness as we sang, this day in which we can relieve ourselves of those things that have pressed us down throughout the week, a day in which we can use the various ways that you've given to us to enjoy you, to enjoy your people, to enter into your rest. And we pray, O Lord, that you will make us more skillful at this. We pray that you would deliver us from Satan's lie that would try to make this day to be a day of misery instead of a day of refreshment, a day of joy, a day of spiritual help, a day of of communion with you. Help us, O Lord, to cultivate more and more uh, the disciplines of how it is that we can, as Christians and as men and women created in your image, how it is that we can imitate you as Adam was expected to do and enter into your rest, to your refreshment, and to your delight. And to those and for those that are still laboring and heavy laden, burdened with their sins, Lord, deliver them this day. Bring some soul that's in misery with sin. Bring that soul to roll its burden at the cross off. We pray, Lord, that such a one would come to rest in the Lord Jesus and in him and in him alone. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.